0: So we're in Mark chapter 8, and verse 22 through 33, and it's page 1011 in our our NIV Bibles, if you're using the church Bible. Jesus heals a blind man at Bethsaida. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, Don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea, Philippi. On the way he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns.
1: Thanks, Simon, for reading. E, F, P, T, O, Z. No, that's it. In fact, that's only it because I memorised them before. Um, my my vision's so bad without my glasses, I just see a kind of vague blur at the back. And and of course, I know that for some in our church family, even seeing letters on a screen like that is literally impossible. So, so please forgive me for that. But. The first eye test that I, that I can remember was when I was 10. We were at school and we, we filed into the room one by one to, to read the letters off the eye chart. It didn't feel like a, like a big deal. I was pretty confident when, when my turn came and I set off reading E, F, P, T, O, Z. Yep, that's it. And I can remember the, the question that, that came next. Can't you see any more than that? And it, it seemed like a strange thing to ask, because surely no one could make out those kind of vague black smudges further down the eye chart. Only, of course, I soon realized they really could. And my teacher hadn't spent the last year writing on the board in some kind of vague, blurry kind of handwriting. And so it was off to the opticians for my first pair of glasses to correct the short-sightedness that I didn't even know that I had. Sometimes you can't see that you can't see. Of course, sometimes it's really obvious, like for the man brought to Jesus at the start of our passage. He's completely blind, knows that he can't see the Jesus that everyone's talking about, but he can feel him as Jesus gently takes his hand and leads him away somewhere quiet. And I guess for the disciples, Peter and the others, as they follow, the anticipation is probably building. He's going to do it again, isn't he? As Jesus stops and spits on the man's eyes, that's, that's a bit gross, isn't it? And, and then he touches him as he's touched that leper, and Jairus' dead little girl and so many other hurting, broken people. And, and so they know what's going to happen next. Only it's not quite like those other times. As, as the man starts looking around, squinting, his, his sight restored, but, but only partly. He can see the shapes of the people standing around him, but verse 24, just blurred figures like trees walking around, everything out of focus. And maybe the disciples look at each other, shocked, confused. Is is Jesus losing his touch? Until Jesus tries again, and and this time, well, the change is dramatic. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Clearly. And you can imagine the disciples' relief. Phew, that was a close one. But also the questions left hanging in the air as they travel on. Why was it such a struggle getting him to see? Could could curing a blind man really be harder than healing the paralyzed or raising the dead? They're feeling the shock of lingering blindness. Jesus never comments until further up the road when he suddenly turns and asks, verse 27, who do people say I am? And again, you can imagine the awkward silence. Who's going to answer this one? Before the disciples start to chip in what they've been picking up. Well, the opinion polls, they're they're pretty positive, Jesus. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And it seems like people are grasping true things about Jesus, that he's no ordinary man, that he, he seems to be speaking with some kind of divine authority and acting with some kind of divine power, and, and they're trying to make sense of him using the, the categories that they have, the people God sent in the past. Maybe he's another prophet like John or, or another wonder worker like Elijah, people are seeing something, but the picture's still blurry. And then Jesus makes it personal. Because ultimately, it always is with Jesus. You, you can't sit on the fence with him forever. Sooner or later, he calls us all individually to decide. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And that make-your-mind-up question is where Mark's account of Jesus, everything he's shown us so far, has been building to. And now here we are, right bang in the middle of Mark's gospel, and Jesus presses the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter smashes it, doesn't he? You're the Messiah, Jesus. John, Elijah, they were just the warm-up acts. You're the main event, the Messiah, God's unique promised rescuing king. That's who you are, and he's got it. Mark told us way back in chapter 1, verse 1, that that's who Jesus is, and Peter is the first person in the gospel to get it, to see Jesus clearly. And so I imagine that Peter's feeling pretty smug as verse 30, Jesus tells him to, Keep it quiet. Well, I guess the rest of them, they're not quite ready to see what I see. And then Jesus starts to explain God's great plan for the Messiah and thinks, Peter, this is going to be good. Only it's not. Because, verse 31, this plan's not, it seems, about power, but suffering. Not about achieving celebrity, but being rejected. Not glory, but shameful death. And, and Peter listens with absolute horror, because Jesus is seeing it all wrong. Peter, he knows what the Messiah, what God's rescue needs to look like, and, well, this isn't it. How can Jesus be so blind to how it's going to be? Peter needs to step in quickly before this all starts to get out of hand. And as he does, verse 33, Jesus' response is brutal. Get behind me, Satan! It's a stinging put-down. It's maybe the harshest thing that Jesus says anywhere in Mark's Gospel. Get out of my sight, Peter. What you're thinking is straight out of the mouth of the evil one. And you think, whoa, Jesus, that feels pretty over the top, doesn't it? Until you realize what Peter's really saying to him. You can forget the cross, Jesus. That's not what we need. We can do without it. Surely surely there's an easier, softer, more feel-good rescue than that. And Jesus knows that that thinking is deadly. Deadly for Peter and deadly for the other disciples who he knows are thinking in exactly the same way. Do you notice in verse 33 how he turns and looks at them? Because he knows how easily we all fall for the lie that offers a pain-free route to the good life, that bypasses the cross but has no cure for the sin that will one day kill us forever. And so Jesus calls out that lie for what it is, devilish. And he leaves us with another shock as we realize blindness doesn't just linger for that man back in Bethsaida. Peter's just got so much gloriously right about Jesus. He's seen so much, but his vision is still dangerously blurred and most frightening of all peter can't see that he can't see that first blind man when his when his vision was filled with walking talking trees he knew that something wasn't right but peter's lingering blindness looks to him like perfect 2020 vision he's convinced he's seeing things the way they really are in fact He's seeing things more clearly than Jesus is. Seeing that that what he really needs is a saviour who will conquer, not die. Who will fix his problems out there, not not those in here. Who will boot out the Romans, yes, not free him from the sin lurking in his own heart. Peter's convinced that God's plan for his life, well, that must mean success and popularity and security. And all those ideas are like the lenses that he looks at reality through. The glasses he thinks are helping him to see clearly when all the time Jesus knows they're blinding him to what he most urgently needs to see. And notice verse 33 how Jesus describes Peter's problem you do not have in mind the concerns of God but merely human concerns that's all that's Peter's problem not, not anything particularly wicked just seeing things the same way that everyone else does aiming for the same things in the same way that everyone else does same lifestyle, same exam results, same friends, same house, same promotion, seeing those things as my real needs so that they fill my whole vision. Which begs the question, what are my lenses? What are the spiritual glasses that you're wearing? And what might they be keeping us from seeing? Because the funny thing about glasses is you stop noticing you've got them on until they steam up and then you do remember, but, but you stop noticing that you're looking through them. Otherwise, it'll be very distracting, and usually that's a good thing unless, well, unless all the time they're dangerously distorting your vision and you can't see it. You can't see the lingering blindness that keeps you from really recognizing Jesus and your need for him. And remember, this is Peter. He spent years following Jesus. He's as keen a Christian as you can get. And he can't see that he can't see. That's the shock of lingering blindness. And if that unsettles us as I think it's meant to, those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, then what's the answer? What's the cure for lingering blindness? Well, Jesus has already shown us in that encounter with the blind man. Because seeing trees walking around needing two goes, it it wasn't because Jesus wasn't really in the zone that day or, or because his connection to the heavenly network was unstable and buffering. No, it was an acted parable to to help us realize that, that blindness can be stubborn, that it can linger, but that seeing comes as it came for that man in Bethsaida through repeated contact with Jesus' healing touch. That's what we need. And we don't need to doubt his willingness to help. Jesus doesn't ditch that man when his eyes aren't open the first time, does he? And he won't ditch us. Verse 25, once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Don't doubt his patience with you or his power to help. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. That's the eye-opening touch of Jesus. So how does it come? Well, really simply, as we keep following Jesus on the way of discipleship. Do you notice in in verse 27, that that little phrase, on the way. It's really easy to skip over, but it's, it's really important for Mark, because it's his shorthand for being a disciple, following Jesus on the way. And in these next couple of chapters, Mark keeps dropping it in again, and again, as he shows us what being a disciple is all about. And if you just flick forward over the page to the end of chapter 10, see what happens when we've when we stuck close to Jesus and followed him on this way that he leads. End of chapter 10, what happens? Blindness gets banished. Another blind man persists in trusting Jesus and chapter 10, verse 52, immediately he received his sight and follow Jesus literally on the way. And so you get what we're being shown, that lingering blindness gets healed as we put ourselves within range of Jesus and his repeated touch. As we commit ourselves to, to hearing his word day after day by ourselves and together in community with his people, as we follow behind the only one who can open blind eyes. And do you notice that? It's, it's following behind, not putting ourselves in front. Did you spot, back in chapter 8, verse 32, how, how Peter reverses the order when he took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him so that, so that Jesus would follow his agenda? And what's Jesus' response? Get. Behind me. That's the only place that a disciple can be. Not trying to lead, not not thinking that you know best and see more clearly than Jesus does. That's the surest sign that your vision is blurred. No, humbly following. Being willing to trust his word even when you don't like it. Even when the other way looks so much better. Get behind me. That's what Jesus is telling Peter because that's where lingering blindness is slowly but surely cured. Only we need to be ready because sometimes that that healing touch will come as loving rebuke. Jesus is really harsh with Peter here, isn't he? Get behind me, Satan. It's a slap in the face. But that rebuke, it's not rejection. It's loving correction. It's the loving touch of the Savior. And our culture finds that really hard to believe because because it believes that love is all about affirming, encouraging me to to go where my heart wants to go. But it's not true. Sometimes love looks like a sharp, eye-opening rebuke. There was a moment like that um, this week in our house when, when my seven-year-old was, um, was had to be told about not sitting on the windowsill beside a wide-open upstairs window. And it was a firm rebuke. I don't imagine my daughter found it very affirming. But sometimes that's what real love looks like. So those of you who are in Pathfinders or Grafted, let me ask you, do you have a friend who cares about you enough to tell you when you're being an idiot? I hope you do. And I hope those of us who are older do too, because don't we need it? Because those times where we think we know best, but our, our lenses are blinding us to the danger, and we can't see what we can't see. And at those times, we need a good friend to rebuke us in time. And what a friend we have in Jesus who says to his church in Revelation, those whom I love, I rebuke and correct. So be earnest and repent. Listen especially in those moments when his word touches too close for comfort, when it unsettles me and doesn't make me feel good about myself, but makes me see my need for saving. And when that rebuke comes, let's remember it's not rejection. It's the loving touch of the Savior, the one who saw my greatest need and went all the way to the cross to meet it who was rejected and killed, his body broken, his blood shed, as we're about to remember, because he loves me too much to leave me in my lingering blindness. Amen. I'm going to give us a moment to pause and to think and to pray before David comes and leads us on.